Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Elena Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student at Yale University studying planets and solar system science. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transient events. You're listening to episode 14, Baby Photos. And today we're going to be looking at a lot of different parts of the universe at all different size scales, specifically in their infancy. I think this is such a fun idea. Yeah, for sure. If it's okay with the two of you, I'm just going to jump right in. Let's go. All right. (laughs) So eager. Yeah, I'm going to talk about a baby photo of the entire universe. Well, that sounds kind of terrifying. It's like a giant baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm going to be talking about a baby the size of the universe. How old was the universe when it was the size of an actual human baby? Oh, it must have been like... Like 10 to Infin- the minus. Yeah, infinitesimally small fraction <laughs> okay, of okay, a second. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> now, when our universe was a baby, and I wasn't there myself personally, but from what I've been told by other people, the universe underwent a period of just ridiculously fast growth. That reminds me of my brother, who really hit puberty, and, and though seven years younger than me, has over four inches on me. Wow. And I'm 6'2 myself. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel so shrimpy with you guys around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, for your brother, it may be called puberty. For the universe, this period was called inflation. And it's a central tenet of current cosmological theory. We think it started roughly 10 to the minus 36 seconds after the Big Bang, and then suddenly, randomly, stopped around 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang. Oh, universes grow up so fast. (laughs) (laughs) They really do. Now, it's hard to directly confirm inflation. We have no idea what the physical mechanism driving it was or why it stopped so suddenly, but inflation cleanly explains away a number of different cosmological issues. Namely, that the universe is roughly isotropic, that it's the same roughly in all directions, and that it's also approximately flat. But nevertheless... Scientists continue to search for ways to challenge inflationary theory, either to confirm it or to disprove it and come up with something better. And right now, an exciting search is underway to find a confirmation of inflationary theory right in the universe's own baby picture. How could we possibly get a picture of something that happened so long ago and so quickly? And that we weren't even there for. Of course. So (laughs) the baby picture that we're going to be talking about here is the cosmic microwave background, the cool leftover radiation from when the universe went from being a hot, opaque, ionized plasma to a collection of neutral hydrogen atoms and photons that respected social distancing. (laughs) So the CMB light at that point was infrared and red mainly, but its wavelength has since redshifted down to the microwave range. Hmm, That's interesting. Um, Since the CMB comes from when hydrogen... Uh, atoms reformed, why wouldn't it be more in the ultraviolet, which is the energy of a hydrogen atom? Yeah, so you'd expect it to be ultraviolet if you expect the peak to be, as you said, where hydrogen atoms should ionize. 
But in actuality, the light from the cosmic microwave background follows a distribution of values, some at higher temperatures, some at lower temperatures, higher energies, lower energies. And in reality, you don't need the peak of that distribution to be low enough so that it doesn't ionize hydrogen. You need the vast majority of those photons to be so low that they won't ionize oh, that hydrogen. Huh. And that, in reality, happens when the peak is not in ultraviolet, but it's red or infrared. Very cool. So the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about is called Glimpsing the Fingerprints of Gravitational Waves in the Early Universe. It's a guest post written by Grace Chessmore, based on a paper by Norgard Nielsen in 2018, and it searches for polarization of the cosmic microwave background within Planck data. I have a question about the, the CMB. Now, we detect these photons in the microwave coming from every direction, but where are they coming from? Like, they must be traveling from somewhere to somewhere. Yeah, so it's a great question, and it's extremely non-intuitive, at least to me. But as you said, the somewhere that the light comes from is from every direction all at once. But the somewhen that the light comes from <laughs> is from, as we said before, the period of recombination, when the universe was around 380,000 years old, or at a redshift of around 1,100. So at that time, the entire universe was full of photons. And as we've continued to expand, we're seeing the photons from that period uh, coming to us on Earth. Right. I think I've seen this described as sort of like an ant can be crawling on a balloon. And as it expands, it kind of feels like everything's expanding at the same time. But it's not like that space had existed beforehand. Does, is that sort of what you're trying to get out with the somewhere it's a little like asking the question of where did the big bang happen where did the singularity uh, yeah. at the very beginning of the universe happen it yeah. happened everywhere all at once because it was the universe but we're not still seeing it or are we that's because the cosmic microwave background forms this grand curtain of light that is so bright that we can't see anything past that mm. interesting so at recombination of a redshift of around 1100 we have the light that's the furthest back in the universe that we can ever look. So the, the cosmic microwave background that was emitted where we are now traveled to somewhere else? That doesn't make any sense, does it? And yeah, it's a tough question because I think you're thinking about the universe existing in a particular location at a certain redshift, when in reality, all, mm. all locations that we ever know of are contained within that universe that was a smaller size at that time. Right. So non-intuitive. It just yeah. seems it seems so weird <laughs> that we can like go with our telescopes, collect these photons, which then get used up, like they're gone. And yet the universe just has like an unlimited supply of photons from this event that happened so long ago, so somewhere, everywhere, and yet we're still <laughs> collecting enough to, to see it all the time. Yeah. That's crazy. I agree with that. All right. <laughs> we're all on the same page. <laughs> so... The cosmic microwave background is in the microwave, as we said, but you can actually hear it if we shift down the signal into the audio range. And so that sounds like this. Oh. So that's what the cosmic microwave background sounds like. 
shifted into the audio. Sounds like a busy highway. <laughs> it does. It sounds like white noise to me. It sounds like the ISS. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sounds like vacuuming on the ISS during <laughs> Apollo 11. <laughs> so the CMB was discovered in the 1960s by Penzias and Wilson. This is a very well-known story. But we've continued to get better and better data analyzing the CMB. So there was the Cosmic Background Explorer, or COBE, in the 90s, and then the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, or WMAP, in 2003, to now Planck. This is the data that we're talking about today, an ESA mission from 2009 to 2013, which we're continuing to analyze to get more information. A short little uh, anecdote about this. When I went to a conference about a year ago, I got a cool little giveaway. It's one of those images that when you turn it at a different angle, it, it creates a different image. What's the name for that? Do you, does it have a name? It does, but I'm blanking on it now. Well, it doesn't matter. So it had three images you could get at different tilts. And the first one was the Kobe uh, CMB, then WMAP, then Planck. So you turned it and you see it go from very kind of fuzzy blotches to much more detailed. And then the very fine little structures that you see from the Planck data. And I, that was really cool. Very cool. That's yeah. awesome. So the CMB is one incredible baby picture of the universe. We can learn so much about our entire universe just from staring at it in higher and higher resolution. For example, as we said before, the CMB tells us that the background radiation everywhere we look is very, very homogenous, 2.725 Kelvin, roughly. But it's the, so it's the best black body that we know of in nature, and it's another line of support for inflation. But its light can also be polarized for several different reasons. So when you say polarization, do you mean the same kind of polarization in sunglasses? So I'm referring to the same phenomenon, but exactly what causes that polarization is different. Fun fact, I learned the other day that the human eye is weakly sensitive to polarized light. So polarization can appear as a bow tie pattern at the center of the eye. I'm not kidding. This is called Haydinger's brush. Whoa. And it may have been used by Vikings to locate the position of the sun, triangulate and uh, navigate their ships when obscured by landscapes or after sunset. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, it's crazy, right? That reminds me of another good Viking fact, also related to the sun. It's called the <laughs> Novaya Zimla effect. And okay. this is when the, um, the sun is visible below the horizon um, because of refraction in the atmosphere. It only occurs up near the poles. But in fact, there's some theory that the Vikings used this effect to be able to see um, – Newfoundland in, in northern Canada from uh, uh, Greenland and Iceland, which is normally not visible. It's too far away. But because there was like a, a special polar vortex that created this pocket of cool air, it refracted the coastline around the atmosphere and they could see that it was there and keep sailing to find it. It's very wow. speculative, though. <laughs> That's incredible. Huh. Who knew there were so many... Uh atmospheric phenomena tied up into viking navigation <laughs> yeah it's really neat <laughs> so alex could you tell us how we study the polarization of the cmb right so for the sake of this discussion we study two main types of polarization and that's e mode and b mode polarization now i don't want to get into the details of exactly what constitutes e mode and b mode polarization but they're fundamentally different complementary types of polarization so we think that E-modes are primarily caused by density perturbations in the early universe, whereas B-modes are caused, again, we think, 
by gravitational waves that were created during this very rapid inflationary period in the early universe. Something I should also mention is that instead of looking at the temperature map of the CMB on the sky, we instead decide to look at the CMB's power spectrum. And that describes how much power the cosmic microwave background has at different spatial scales, or as a function of different multipole moments. We talked about multipole expansions or spherical harmonics in previous episodes, I believe. It's a complicated topic. Yes. So this is exactly the same. It's decomposing the signal into its component spherical harmonics. And so if we were able to detect B-mode polarization in the CMB and understand its power as a function of different multipoles, it would be a very solid confirmation of inflationary theory. Cool. So how did the authors actually look for these B-modes then? So with respect to this paper, they used neural networks to recover the CMB signal from millimeter and submillimeter observations of the sky and extract the power spectrum of both E and B modes. Well, did they find the B modes? So they argue that they did find the B modes, but we have to be careful. So lensing of CMB photons by intervening matter can mix the signals from E and B modes, which can cause a little bit of contamination and we might be able to see B modes where there wasn't originally a B-mode signal. And in addition, synchrotron emission and thermal dust emission from within our galaxy are also polarized and can cause some of this polarization that we see. Correcting for all this, they still find a strong signal, but it's not yet at a high enough significance to put the question to rest once and for all. And in addition, the signal that they saw when they look at the uh, multiple expansion of it, the power spectrum, it looks like it's in slight tension with the power spectrum you would expect from canonical inflationary predictions for what B-modes should look like. And that's really interesting. And like the summary statement of every great paper, we will have to wait for the next generation of polarization projects to resolve this tension. Exactly. (laughs) Very true. And with that, it's time to move on to the Astro Soundscape of the Space Fortnite bi-weekly audio clip. For your ears. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is the one I'm going to bring to you all today. It is in the drive, but I'll unplug the the, uh, headphones so you all can hear it. What are we thinking? It sounds like the beginning of that one movie. Is it 2001 A Space Odyssey or something? <laughs> but like on the beach? Hmm. That's what I'm getting. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, wait, wait. So, so let's dig into that for a second. Why do you think it's on the beach? What made you think of that? Because at the end, it was... It, it sounded almost like waves crashing on the sand, which you can actually reproduce very nicely with instruments, but... i assume that's not what this is what about you um i was thinking it sounded like a drill and i was going to guess the insight drill on mars that is being used to try to uncover information below the surface so this audio is a series of clips of sonified light variations from distant stars okay So the authors of a paper related to this argue that by listening for these temperature variations, some of them earlier in the clip sound like this very rapid hum, 
and those corresponds to two rapidly rotating stars. And at the very end, like you said, Melina, what kind of sounds like an ocean of white noise, that quote-unquote static is from massive upwelling and convective cells of much more massive stars. So they argue that by listening to these temperature variations, you can estimate the surface gravity of stars and where they are in their evolution. Whoa. So is this like listening to the pulsation of stars or something else? So this is related to their rotation. It's not just the pulsation. This is listening to exactly how the light changes. So with the rapid rotators, I think what you're actually hearing is the rotation of sunspots causing variations in the temperature and you can hear that rotation exactly and you can hear that rotation in that that kind of very rapid rotation of the uh of the light and you couldn't see that with a regular plot potentially you could i think this particular paper was tying it to the surface gravity the light variations which hadn't been done before and you can also hear it quite nicely cool that's a very fun space sound very functional space sound yeah thank you and you said this came from a paper? Like, it did come from a paper, yes. Uh, that somebody... was printed in Nature that we can link in the show notes. Sounds okay. good. Okay, so somebody was actually using this in order to try to study their data. So it wasn't clear to me whether the paper used the sonification or whether they just used the data to estimate the surface gravity. But Nature released this clip on YouTube saying that the data was taken from the paper. Cool. Very neat. In any case, Melina, we should probably move on to your astrobite. Sure. <laughs> so I'm actually super excited about this asteroid because it's about a really fun planetary system, of course. Um, and so I'm going to be bringing us to some of the younger babies of the universe, which are planet babies, uh, talking about an astrobite called First Photos of a Baby Planet by Briley Lewis, which is based on a paper by Muller et al. 2018. And the main point of this paper is to gain a better understanding of the properties of this young, newly formed, or maybe even continually forming planet called PDS-70b. How do we know that it's a baby? Well, you can figure out the age of the planet, or at least the maximum age of the planet, based on the age of the star. And so this particular planet is around a low-mass T-Tauri pre-main sequence star, so it's still sort of contracting onto the main sequence. It hasn't started burning hydrogen yet, Uh, and it's only around 10 million years old, and it still has a transition disk in the system, which is sort of like not quite a protoplanetary disk, not quite a debris disk. It's kind of in the phase of forming (laughs) this planet. Hmm. And so PDS-70b was discovered by the Sphere team in 2015, which is this group based in Europe that works on direct imaging uh, as part of the SHINE survey, where SHINE stands for Sphere Infrared Survey for Exoplanets, and it's looking for young planets around nearby young stars. And this planet, when I say it was directly imaged, I mean, we actually do have a picture of it. We have light directly from that planet, uh, and direct imaging instruments like Sphere use a coronagraph, which is basically just something that blocks out the light of the star so that you can actually resolve the stuff that exists around the star in the same frame. You're saying the coronagraph was used by the team in 2015 when they discovered the object? Uh, Yes, so it was used then, and it was also used in this paper to get more images and try to better characterize the planet. So if the planet was directly imaged back in 2015, maybe these are the second baby pictures we're seeing? Or does that make them 
adolescent pictures? <laughs> yeah, you know, stuff in space mm-hmm. ages pretty slowly, so planet years are kind of like the opposite of dog years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but more pictures, hopefully, tell us more of the story, right? So what do we now know about this planet's growth that we didn't know after the first pictures? Well, this was the first spectroscopic characterization of the planet from the Sphere team. Uh, There aren't a lot of different data points, but they can look at the spectrum of the planet by just looking at it in a couple of different wavelengths and getting a very coarse spectrum. So with that, uh, together with their previous observations, they used a grid of atmospheric models to try to learn more about this planet. Um, So that's something new. They figured out it probably has a cloudy atmosphere. Its temperature is probably like 1,000 to 1,600 Kelvin, and its radius is probably like a little bit bigger than Jupiter, 1.4 to 3.7 Jupiter radii. So uh, they, they managed to get some much better constraints than they had before because they were able to look at it in a few different wavelengths. When I hear atmospheric models, my ears perk up. So I, I actually did some reading on this to see what kind of models they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they're generally simple models, kind of like like hand. You can get this this working model downloaded and, and run a few options. But it's very hard to match a model to spectra because spectra have a lot of uh, variations and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And there are so many model input parameters that create the same output. Um, it, it's kind of challenging. Right. And I also noticed they said this thing could be as big as 17 Jupiter masses. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. the range of possibilities is between 2 and 17 Jupiter masses, which is pretty uncertain. <laughs> yeah. 2 is like a regular kind of Jupiter planet. And 17 is like, is that a brown dwarf or a small star? What are we looking at there? Yeah. The cutoff, we think, when you start getting unsure whether it's a planet or a brown dwarf is around 13 Jupiter masses. So it's quite possible that this is actually more of a brown dwarf type object. Um, based on this paper's constraints, it's kind of hard to say, but I guess a smaller portion of that range is the upper brown dwarf region. Uh, but depending on exactly what mass it is, it could sort of change our understanding of how this object formed and what exactly it is. So, Melina, how far is this planet, I guess, brown dwarf, whatever it is, how far is this object from its host star? Yeah, so the other thing the authors did that was pretty cool is they managed to use astrometric information, so precise measurements of the planet's position over the span of these uh roughly five years since it was discovered to better constrain its orbit. And they ended up finding that it's probably on an orbit coplanar to the system's disk on a circular path around 22 AU inside the disk gap. So that's its current distance, and it's probably going to consistently be its distance throughout its entire orbit since it's on a circular orbit. Uh, and that's that's pretty far from the star. The year on this planet, then, the amount of time it takes to complete a full orbit is 118 Earth years. It's a long time. I would not want to wait that long for a birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's rough life. <laughs> I know this system has gotten uh, a bunch of news coverage and has, has been studied pretty regularly. Any new developments since this paper came out? Yeah, so what we know about the system is continually evolving. There are papers on it fairly regularly. And another one from 2019 actually claims that there's a circumplanetary disk around PDS-70b. So that's really exciting. 
It, to my knowledge, that would be the first ever observational evidence of a circumplanetary disk. So that's super, super cool. Um, and there's also maybe a second planet, actually almost certainly a second planet, PDS-70C, that was discovered also in 2019, a little farther away from the host star by Hafford et al. And it was observed by finding localized H-alpha emission, which is a signature of material accreting onto the planets and causing them to grow effectively um, at both the location of PDS-70B and at another spot, which is now what is known as PDS-70C, the other planet. So I have a question. You said that it might be the first ever observational evidence of a circumplanetary disk. Mm -hmm. If it were a brown dwarf, would that change? Is there far more evidence of circum brown dwarf disks out there in the universe? As far as I know, I am not actually aware of disks around brown dwarfs that are known, but that is a very good question. I don't think there are any. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think there are any either, but I haven't done an exhaustive search, but I feel like that's probably something that would come up in the planet community <laughs> if it was a thing. Cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can bet on it. Interesting. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. Thanks, Melina. Yeah, no problem. It was short and sweet. All right. Now, so that brings us to my astrobite, which is called Baby Photos of a Galaxy Cluster. And that was written by Ben Cook. And the paper is by Strazulo and others published in 2016. So, Galaxy Clusters, this is a little out of your wheelhouse, Will, isn't it? I don't think you you've bet. done any Galaxy Bites before. Mm. Yeah, there's a first time for everything. And uh, <laughs> if I mess up, you're going to have to step in and correct me. <laughs> you're talking to Melena or me? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not me. <laughs> I think we mentioned in one of our early episodes that there are generally two main types of galaxies, the blue and the red. Uh, the blue are star forming like ours, and the red are red and dead. They tend to just have the very oldest of stars, which are the smallest and the reddest, and they'll kind of phase out and then eventually sort of die without any sort of new material to regenerate. But interestingly, all the red galaxies seem to be about the same color in a cluster. Because once they've gotten old enough where they're not making new stars, all the old ones that are left are all the, the reddest of the red stars. And so those all happen to be the smallest mass, which can only be a certain size. So they're all red of about the same color in a narrow band. And in this paper, they were looking at a specific galaxy cluster called CLJ1449 plus 0856. Catchy name. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so if you're saying that this is a baby galaxy cluster, does that make it blue? And do we know how old it is based on the color? Well, we definitely know how old it is. Um, the, the redshift tells us it's about 10 billion years old. So that's Z equals two. Um, and its color is still mostly red, which is interesting huh. because most of the galaxy clusters today are red. So we wanted to see, you know, is there an evolutionary track that a galaxy cluster follows, like our own, for instance, from, from many, many billions of years ago to today. And they, they suspect that this um, galaxy cluster is a progenitor of the massive galaxy clusters we see in the nearby universe that is like the, the galaxy clusters today. Because, of course, this one does exist today and it did evolve, but we only get the light that's traveled for 10 billion years to reach us. So we don't get to see what it looks like today. So, Will, if they need very, very accurate color information in order to constrain this whole evolutionary track for massive clusters, they 
would need really, really good data to perform this whole analysis to begin with. Is that right? That is right. And they went to the Hubble Space Telescope. They received a bunch of observing cycles and got some great photometric data, but it's not spectroscopic data. The key difference is photometric data is an image taken in a specific color filter, and maybe they have a few images, but spectroscopic data is every single conceivable color, and it's a whole spectrum of all the different, and that's what they really want. They don't have it yet, but they can still get some good color information from the photometric data. So if you don't have the spectroscopic data, what challenges does that create? Or what what are you no longer able to extract from your data? So wouldn't that make it harder to remove foreground objects from your field? Just guessing here. Yeah, that is their major limitation because they don't know the exact redshift of, of everything in the image that they're seeing. So they could be seeing some red galaxy in the foreground of Z equals 0.1. And without a spectrum to be able to get that actual redshift, um, it could just be a nearby but happen to be red galaxy. And so that makes it a little challenging. They came up with a whole system to filter out the foreground objects, which remains a really big challenge in astronomy because we see a 3D universe projected into a 2D sky. And it's often very hard to, to, to resolve that third dimension without being able to see it. But the other challenge is they get a color, but they don't get like a bunch of different red colors. They just get the one red color by comparing the filters. And maybe it's not just one, but they only had one to plot in the paper. Okay, so what did they manage to learn about that galaxy from that color? Now, if you recall from what I said earlier, is these galaxy clusters tend to have, they tend to be red overwhelmingly, but they always have some blue, and the red tends to be in a very narrow band. It's like a track. They call it the red sequence. So they're all about the same red color. That's what we find today, and that is not the case with this cluster. It is a lot wider of a red sequence than we see today, and so maybe there's some transition somehow. There's some change in a galaxy cluster that makes them all go from different red colors to about the same red color in 10 billion years but they really could use some spectra to, to answer this question. Right. So this seems like a really interesting system. And you mentioned the paper is, I think, around four years old. So mm -hmm. have there been any developments? Has anyone actually gotten those spectra since then? This is a, an interesting object of study. And there have been a few follow-up papers. There was one in 2018 that used uh, ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, and the VLA, the Very Large Array, to find evidence of stellar mergers, to say there are way more stellar mergers going on in these old galaxies than in new galaxies today, which is, which is interesting. Uh, there was another 2018 paper that also used ALMA and found some dusty star formation in the core. So maybe the core isn't as red and dead as they thought. I don't really know. And then there was a paper last year that actually used the Sunyav-Zeldovich effect, which we've talked about in the past, which is the cosmic microwave background being uh, energized as those photons pass through the cluster. It's called inverse Compton scattering. And it's the lowest mass galaxy cluster that has the SZ effect, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So, <laughs> Will, as you've said, there have been many follow-up studies to the one that you're highlighting here <laughs> today. What's next? What's next for this object? What else should we need to look into for this research? Like I've said, they need spectra. And I don't know exactly why they can't get it. 
maybe they just can't resolve this cluster. So they would get spectra of a bunch of other things and it'd be too confusing. Um, maybe Hubble is not capable of doing it for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why, but they say until James Webb launches, um, there won't be a way to get those spectra. Or maybe it's just the temperature. Maybe they need to go into the infrared and Hubble is too warm. It doesn't have uh, the cooling that, that James Webb will have. I, I don't really know. Well, it'll be interesting to see what JWST will be able to uncover about it. If it ever launches. If don't. <laughs> okay, without delving into that rabbit hole of a conversation, we should move on to one-sentence summaries for the episode. So why don't we start with you, Melina? Oh, okay. <laughs> so PDS-70 is a pristine example of a great system showing young planets in the process of formation, giving us a direct glimpse at the early stages of a planet's life and hopefully eventually telling us more about planet formation. Will, what's your one-sentence summary? Baby galaxy clusters seem to have a wider palette of red colors than clusters do today, but that's pretty much all we know. <laughs> Alex? The cosmic microwave background bathes the universe in light, but by searching for B-modes from relic gravitational waves, we may just be able to pull back the curtain. All right, so we sort of talked about lots of different structures in the universe, different sizes, different ages, and there was kind of this correlation I noticed where like the young planet we were talking about was 10 million years old, the young galaxy cluster was 10 billion years mm -hmm. old, and then, you know, the early universe is 13.8 billion years mm -hmm. old. So is there a particular reason that the larger structures in the universe should operate on longer timescales? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I at first blush would wonder if this is like a Russian nested ding doll argument where like you need the universe to make the galaxy cluster. You need the galaxy cluster to make the planets. I don't know. The fact that you are moving to smaller and smaller scales, I think that it probably is faster to either grow very small things or to break up very small things. And so... I think it's only in the local universe that we're really doing these in-depth studies of the smaller phenomenon. A lot of cosmologists would take issue with the nesting doll theory. Because hmm. a lot of them say you need a bottom-up formation, that galaxies form before galaxy clusters do. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, interesting. There's a lot of debate about this. Right. I right. just did a little reading about it. That's that's how I happen to know. But um, both both have credit that there would, you know, first there was a galaxy cluster gas, and then galaxies created from over densities or there were these galaxies already there that then kind of merged and started to bring together their material. Right. But I, th I think an interesting question that comes up when I see this um, point here is how do you come up with a time scale of evolution? Because if we want to talk about like a size scale, we could say like, oh, a planet's, I don't know, roughly a million kilometers, a million meters size. And so we talk about like what's the size, what's the what's the age, what's the time scale equivalent of that? Like roughly how old is a thing? That's hard mm -hmm. to do, right? Yeah, and I think those those time scales are sort of limited by how fast material can move. So there's sort of this intrinsic limit where, you know, nothing can move faster than the speed of light, of course, but mm -hmm. um, things like planets, they are continually interacting with other material and orbiting on much shorter timescales than like galaxies, for example. And so 
Um, I think that it, in that respect, it sort of makes sense that their formation takes less time. And of course, they also have to be younger than the universe. So there's that. <laughs> right, of course. I think you make a great point, Melina. I think if you have, say, two particles, you have a very small system, and you think about the time scale it would take for that system to dramatically change its structure, its composition, whatever it is, then that can be a very short time scale because the velocities of the particles relative to the size scale of the entire system can be mm. pretty significant. But if you now think about the time scale it would take for a composition, a system of, say, 10 billion particles to dramatically change its structure, then the same velocities of particles are going to translate relatively to a much smaller fraction of the entire size of the system. Okay. Huh. Do you think it has to do with, like, an ordered versus a disordered system? Like, um, spiral galaxies are pretty ordered, but... Elliptical galaxies are pretty disordered. They're moving in every different direction. Do you think one would have a faster timescale of change because of the way the particles are kind of ordered or disordered? I think that this this whole conversation kind of reminds me of the idea of collisional timescales where, mm. you know, if things are going to crash into each other fairly often, like galaxies crash into each other a lot, they're more likely to have dramatic changes over I guess, relatively short timescales, which can, what what you define as relatively short is sort of defined by this idea of the collisional timescale then. But like, if your collisional timescale is way shorter for a galaxy versus, for example, stars, then you're going to have bigger structural changes within that object because it crashes into other stuff more often. That's sort of like where my mind went with this, but I don't know if that's where you were going. No, I think it's a great point. I think that also ties into like the crossing time for different objects so like yeah. if you have a slight perturbation of an orbit every uh, n cycles but the orbital time scale is vastly different or the crossing time is dramatically different for different size objects then you're going to have a dramatic change in the evolution of your object over vastly different time scales mm -hmm. nice so another interesting question that I think is very closely related to all of these studies is the question of why these evolutionary studies are so important because, you know, we use them as kind of our argument for why we should be funded, for example, like, Oh, I'm studying <laughs> the origins of the universe. But right. you know, when you actually dig into that, like, why is that important? Why does that matter so much to us? It's a great question. I don't know. Maybe it's got to do with like, us as as people just just like kind of a, an evolution biological thing that we desire to know where we come from i mean it's maybe mm -hmm. it motivates the creation or the the maintenance of religion it's like mm -hmm. it, it provides an answer maybe it's not the answer but it's it's comforting to have an answer of, of how things work and science offers a different one i don't know i think it's also implicit within the statement that like, I'm going to uncover the origins of this thing that I will at least constrain exactly what happened between the origin and now. So like, if we just have a picture of the object, then we don't have that much information mm. about it. But if we have how it began and we have it now, then we can place some understanding on the evolutionary history, which tells us so much about physical phenomenon that happened to it 
Yeah. Do you actually get that solution, though? Uh, I think you get constraints. <laughs> I don't think you get the full evolutionary <laughs> history, but Fair I think enough. two pictures are better than one for constraining the full timeline. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it it would be kind of silly if you were to submit a proposal that says, I want to learn about exactly what this galaxy looked like 3.264 billion years ago. Like if you just had an arbitrary time at some point in the past. So now looking at it in that light, it also seems kind of silly to just say, I want to know exactly what it looked like at its origin instead of trying to uncover the full evolution. I think there must be some sort of social science understanding of what drives physicists, astronomers, cosmologists toward these questions. Yeah. And it seems like it's it's kind of something that people are universally interested in. Mm-hmm. Like when I give talks, people are they're very interested in the idea of, you know, first of all, are we alone? Is there other life? Right. And then also where did the universe come from and mm-hmm. how did this all happen in the first place? And maybe it's just that humans are intrinsically curious and that's one of those big questions that just seems so unreachable that you know we're trying to attack that question because we're we just want to know things but i i mean like of course other knowledge comes from our pursuit of specific questions but i don't think that those are generally the goals like you know creating the technology needed for microwaves and stuff came out of something something astronomy but that wasn't the goal i think you make a really good point though and that i think the origin does represent like the furthest possible limit of that knowledge about an object like Mm -hmm. knowing about half it's what it did when it was half as old as it is now is interesting but you know what would be even more interesting is when it was like just born at the very very furthest moment back in time for that object that's really interesting I guess if you know the entire history of something, you feel like you understand it. Hmm. Maybe it's an illusion and you really don't. Yeah, it comes back to Will's question about if you know what it looks like now and you know what it looked like at the very beginning of its formation, do you know its formation history from those two snapshots? I think a lot of scientists in biology and evolutionary science look to explain complex human behavior as coming from survival instincts uh, many millions of years ago that were supported through environment and maybe you could think that there's some way of of understanding origins that is a survival mechanism somehow deeply rooted in our need to make the world safe or to um, create an understanding or to 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 spread our our dna there's something there's something baked into us that like i think that that does make sense because you know, how our universe was created is intrinsically linked to how it will end if it ever does. Mm. So yeah. there there are definitely ways that it affects our understanding of what will happen in the future. It's interesting that I feel like I never think about those as my personal motivations for research, but I wonder if other people do. Mm. And maybe that's just like an underlying subconscious thing that I've had in mind, like, oh, Maybe if I learn more about planets, it'll somehow save humanity someday. I don't know. Well, I think I'm completely under the false belief that any discovery any day could solve the problems of the universe. Hmm. Of the universe, not just the Earth, but the entire universe. Oh, absolutely. Right. And I will find it in my data from Mars. (laughs) Nothing to do with cosmology. How much time do you need? (laughs) 
I just need a million dollars and I'll take as long as it takes. Yeah, got it. Okay. <laughs> NSF, if you're listening. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. So that concludes episode 14 of Astro Soundbites, Baby Photos. If you'd like to read the three astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear more of our wonderful episodes, then check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Cosmos.